morning, everyone. It's good to be together, and I want to welcome those who are online. I suspect that if there might be a few more people that are staying home and safe in this stormy uh, weather, and I hope that things have been okay with the floods. If you do have any concerns or needs, please feel free to reach out uh, to the church office, and uh, we'd love to be able to find ways to support you as uh, we've navigated these very difficult times in our county. Well, it is Advent, as you can tell, and we are beginning today a new series, a four-week series, that's going to look at this passage in Isaiah 9. We are going to work through a series titled, He Shall Be Called, looking at the different names of the Messiah, the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And my hope for us in this series is that this would be an opportunity for us to expand our vision of God, to have a more expansive view of the fullness of who Christ is and what this coming Messiah means for us and for our world. In preparation for this series, I've been rereading a classic by J.B. Phillips titled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is too small. And indeed, as he mentions in this book, we, if we're not careful, can have a very limited or distorted image of God. It's almost inevitable in some ways because of our human capacity to to think that we can't fully grasp the fullness of God. But sometimes because of perhaps bad theology or the negative caricatures of God in our culture— or our experience of Christians misrepresenting God, our our image can be distorted, or it could be too small. My hope is that our eyes would be open to to a bigger God this Christmas season. This was really part of my spiritual journey during the early years of college. I realized that the image of God that I had developed during adolescence wasn't big enough to face the adult challenges of life. As I started to encounter suffering, as I was studying philosophy and going to college, I was encountering all these questions that the image of God I had learned wasn't big enough for. And it was a time where I had to work through some of these questions and and ask deeper questions of who God is. Perhaps that names where some of us come today, that we are asking some big questions about who God is and how does that intersect with the very real challenges that we face in our day and age. One of the distorted images of God that J.B. Phillips speaks about is what he calls the grand old man image of God. And this idea that God is kind of this kind old grandpa figure that doesn't really have a whole lot to say about challenges in the modern world. That uh, God we read is, is located in the ancient culture, and, and sometimes we have this idea that God really isn't up to the task of some of the challenges we face. In his book, he mentions a study that really revealed this for a lot of young people. It was a psychological test just to get a grasp of people's image of God and their, their assumptions. And one of the questions in this test that was asked of a number of adolescents was, do you think God understands how radar works? Do you think you understand how radar works, this complete technology, uh, complex technology? And this is what Phillips writes. He says, in nearly every case, the reply was no, followed, of course, by a laugh as the conscious mind realized the absurdity of the answer. But simple as this test was, it was quite enough to show that at the back of their minds, these youngsters heard an idea of God quite inadequate for modern days. 
What an interesting just observation. This gut reaction was revealed this idea that their image of God wasn't big enough for this complex modern world that we live in. Now, this has implications for us. What we view God as really directs how we will live our lives and whether we will worship and follow and truly trust this God. And so Phillips concludes that many men and women today are often living with an inner dissatisfaction, without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or godless, but because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to count for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect, and consequently their willing cooperation. And so I wonder if that maybe names something for some of you today that you're still searching or still looking. Maybe you're just tuning in or you got dragged here with family and you're not quite sure about all this stuff. And you're asking some big questions. And I want to speak into that today. Because I believe that these names of the Messiah have the capacity to expand our image of God, to discover a God that is big enough for the very real challenges that we face, a God that has the capacity to lead us out of darkness into light, a God who is this wise, wonderful counselor who knows how to lead us both personally and corporately into a place of flourishing. And so today we're going to look at this first title, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, to begin, I, I want to clarify what this t- term means. And to modern ears, it might sound as if this is saying God is like a kind therapist. Uh, but uh, while I believe God maybe does have that role in our lives, we spoke last week of how God can help us work through anxiety and discover a deeper peace. This phrase does not mean kind therapist. It is actually a political term referring to, as Walter Brueggemann says in his commentary, a wise ruler. That would actually be a more accurate translation. A wise ruler, a wise governor, one who knows how to so order our lives that would lead to justice and righteousness and peace in our world. What I want to do is discover how, how Christ fulfills this role in our lives, and in our world. But before we get there, I I think it's important for us to put Isaiah 9 in its broader context to understand where we are hearing these first words and, and what it is speaking to in the story of Israel. So this is a bleak time in the life of Israel. The Assyrians have risen to power, and because of that, the Israelites are held captive. They are facing all kinds of hardship. They are indeed walking through deep darkness. In the paragraph directly preceding our text, at the end of Isaiah 8, we we read this description of Israel's experience. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And when they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. I don't think I've ever seen that verse on a Christmas card by Hallmark. (laughs) A very bleak context for our Advent story. Can you hear the, the depth of pain in that? They are roaming 
without purpose. They are enraged. They are filled with anger at injustice. They are hungry, literally and spiritually. They are full of fear. They are in a place of deep darkness. And that is the context in which these words come. There's this hope that there will be an end to the darkness, that there will be a wise ruler who will come and make things right, a ruler who will lead the people out of darkness into a time of peace and of justice and righteousness. Now, in the immediate context, there was some initial hope that King Hezekiah would fulfill the role of this wonderful counselor that these words would come to fulfillment. And indeed, Hezekiah did have some initial success as a leader. He fought back the Assyrians. He made some wise leadership decisions that helped Israel come to a, a place of temporary flourishing. And yet, Hezekiah did not fully realize this promise of Isaiah 9. This is Walter Brueggemann in his commentary. He says, In the end, however, the rule of Hezekiah proved to be a disappointment. The glorious anticipation did not work out, for Hezekiah ultimately capitulated to the rising power of Babylon. Perhaps it is inevitable that such high expectations could not be realized. In fact, perhaps it is always so. Perhaps it is always so when we put our hopes on things besides God, on human rulers, on the things of this world. And so the story of Isaiah ends still in a place of longing for the fullness of these words to be realized. As I have thought about how we can connect our story to this story, a couple of initial questions emerge for me. And the first question that I think we ought to reflect on today is who or what is your Assyria today? Assyria represents those forces that lead to darkness, to anger, to fear, to a place of longing. And I suspect that we all come in one way or another connecting with the story. For some of us, it may be on a very personal level. We might be navigating a landscape of deep darkness today where we're struggling to see, we're struggling to make sense of, of what's going on in this world. Some of us perhaps come angry today at the persistent injustice in our world. Perhaps some of us are feeling fearful. Who or what is your Assyria today as you begin this Advent journey? Where are you longing for peace, longing for justice, longing for what is right? And a second question that emerges for me is, who or what is your Hezekiah? Who or what have you turned to to try and remedy the darkness, remedy the injustice, remedy the pain? I think like the Israelites, our hopes have sometimes risen uh, around worldly things that have seemed to promise us deliverance, promise us freedom, promise us wisdom. Perhaps you, like the Israelites, had pinned your hopes on something and it has come up short for you. Have some things that you have turned to, to to provide salvation, to provide hope, come up short, left you still looking for something more. Perhaps some of us have pinned our hopes on worldly success and wealth as an antidote to our insecurity or to our discouragement. 
But I wonder if that has, has come up short for you, that despite some of those external sources of provision, you still feel a bit insecure. You're still longing for something more. David Myers, the psychologist I think I've shared before, says that once your basic needs are met, the correlation between wealth and wealth, well-being just flatlines. Everybody just wants a little bit more. <laughs> And so it does, you know, help when we can meet those basic needs. But after that, the sense that that's where my hope is or where my security lies doesn't line up to human experience. There's still this persistent looking for something more. Perhaps some of us have abandoned God and, and sought to make sense of this world through just the more naturalistic worldview thinking that everything we need is something that we can see or get our hands around, something more firm, that we bought into the secular idea that we don't actually need something beyond this realm. But perhaps that's come up for a little bit short for you as well. I'm noticing culturally right now that there is this burgeoning spiritual longing that the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, the enlightenment was not able to squash. That there is this deep longing in our culture recognizing that there must be something more, some bigger answers to the deep questions in our world. There is a singer-songwriter who leads a band that I've followed for a number of years called Bon Iver. And in fact, the last time I felt cool was before kids was at a Bon Iver concert in Portland at McMinimins. And now I just listen to Fred Penner and, and watch kids shows. But uh, Bon Iver is not a, a Christian singer, uh, songwriter, but in his latest album, I have noticed a real searching for something beyond just what uh, some philosophers call this imminent frame, just this natural world. And he's written this song that is filled with a deep wrestling about who God is and what is a healthy image of God. Now, I don't pretend to really understand all the complexity of these lyrics, but I see in this song an example of a, where our culture is right now, of, of a seeking something deeper. And this is lyrics to his song, Heavenly Father. And it begins saying, Ever since I heard the howling wind, I didn't need to go where the Bible went. But then you know, your gifts seemed heaven sent. In this lyric, there's this initial acknowledgement that I didn't really need to go where the Bible was. I found answers in nature, in the power of the howling wind. And yet, in this season of life, then you see your gifts seemed heaven-sent. These experiences of life seem to be pointing beyond the imminent frame, beyond those natural explanations. And there is a seeking. And so this idea that I can just find answers outside of God has come up short does that perhaps name where you're at in your seeking right now? Is that your Hezekiah, that promised liberation, promised answers, but has come up short? Literally, though, as we connect with this text, I, I wonder if we've actually also put our hope in some spiritual or political leaders that have come up short for us. Now, to be sure, it's important to engage the public sphere. This isn't about disengaging from, from politics. But have you placed your hope in, in someone that has come up short, that the, the longing for peace and true justice is still not fully realized? 
political idolatry is still alive and well in our world. We pin our hopes on, on worldly people, worldly ideas, worldly worldviews that sometimes leave us disappointed. Does that name where you're at? Who or what is your Hezekiah? Into that, I want to proclaim the hope of Advent and discover the ways that Jesus, the Christ, lives into this role of the true wonderful counselor, the true wise ruler that we are looking for, one that can lead to that liberation, lead to that hope, lead to that light. I want to explore with you how Jesus is this wise ruler In Matthew chapter 4, the gospel writer sees Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 9. This text is quoted, and the gospel writer says, This is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus live into this role as wise ruler? Now, at a very basic level, I first want to explore this word wise. And one of the ways I want to heal our image of God, expand our image of God, is to establish this fundamental truth that Jesus is deeply wise and deeply smart. Jesus knows how radar works, just as a baseline, right? This was part of my healing and my spiritual journey was discovering a God that was bigger, that was wise, as I encountered Christians that were thoughtful and just opened my mind to this, this bigger God that I could trust. And I pray that you would discover that God as well. The scriptures remind us that God is not just loving, but also deeply wise. We read in in Colossians 2 that Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do we think of God that way? Do we think of God as smart and intelligent and wise? Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says that we tend to overlook this character a characteristic of God, that when we think about what sophisticated wisdom is, people don't immediately go and think about Jesus of Nazareth. But Willard counters that thought and says this, today we think people are smart who make light bulbs and computer chips and rockets out of stuff already provided. God made the stuff. (laughs) God made the stuff. We need to expand our horizons, open the shutters of our mind and soul to let more of the light in, this light of a God in whom all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are stored. We serve a wise God. A wise God. But there's a specific type of wisdom in view in our text that Jesus isn't just wise generally, but he is also this wise king, this wise ruler. I want to discover with you how Jesus lives into this role. Now, it is common for us to say that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. That is the question we ask as you join a covenant church. And quite honestly, I think we've got the Savior part down. We speak about Jesus as our Savior, the one who forgives us of our sins, but I think we downplay this idea that he is also Lord. He is also Master. He is also the King of Kings. And so it is quite possible that we may go to Jesus as our Savior, but look elsewhere for a Lord or a ruler. 
look elsewhere to find someone that will help determine how we live our lives and how we engage our world. Look to other philosophies, other leaders to fulfill that role of king and ruler. But we remember that Jesus understood him as a coming king, a God who was inaugurating a new kingdom. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Every time Jesus uses the word gospel, euangelion, the gospel that we preach, it is in reference to the breaking in kingdom of God. That is the good news, that there is a new ruler who will so order our lives personally and corporately that we will discover justice and peace. We will discover a life that truly works. And so the the invitation in this text is to make Jesus not just our Savior, but the one that governs how we live our lives, governs how we engage our world. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the wise ruler. But here's the thing. Jesus really turned this label on its head. He redefined what a wise ruler looked like. And people were astonished by the way he went about fulfilling this role. They were expecting someone who would be strong and mighty, who would come with an army, come with political savvy, and, and bring about some temporary resolution to the problem of Rome. And instead, this humble man who was born to poor peasants, where there was no room for him, who spent his first years as a refugee on the run from King Herod, grew up and he became a different kind of leader. He stumbled into Jerusalem on a baby donkey instead of a stallion. He didn't weld a sword, but he took up a cross. And the only crown that he received was a crown of thorns. And as he was being crucified by these powers that everyone was hoping he would overturn, he looked on them and said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they have done. And everyone is looking around saying, where is the wonderful counselor? Where is the wise ruler that we were promised, that we were looking for? But here is the wisdom and the power of Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. And this is what Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. See, the cross seemed like foolishness to the Greeks. This isn't the powerful, wise counselor that we are looking for. And if we're honest, I wonder if it seems a little bit foolish to you, foolish to our American Western sensibilities. Why, in the face of all this injustice, would we choose a path of servanthood? Why would we wash the feet of others? Why would we take up a cross and love sacrificially? Why not fight back against the powers of this world? But here is the good news I want to proclaim to you, friends. There have been many throughout human history who have claimed to be wise rulers, who have claimed to be wonderful counselors, but they have come and gone, and their liberation and their peace and their justice did not last. Assyria has come and gone. Babylon has come and gone. Rome has come and gone. 
Napoleon has come and gone. Stalin has come and gone. Hitler has come and gone. Those who claimed that they would instate a new world order, that they would bring true justice and economic prosperity are blips on the story of human history. There are many others that I could have named that aren't even remembered. Many who are looked down upon now as evil tyrants. But here we are, 2,000 years later, organizing our whole year around this crucified Messiah who toddled into Jerusalem and was killed. And he still has gained the allegiance of millions around this world. He is still the one that we have come to worship today. And I want to proclaim to you with Paul that Jesus is in fact precisely the wise ruler that we need to govern our lives and govern our world. It is the Christ crucified that is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now why is that? Why is this a path that we ought to follow? Why should we now take up our cross and follow him? Let our lives be governed by the cross, by agape love, by servanthood. See, here's something that Jesus knew that these other wise counselors did not know, that you do not change the world through coercion. You may gain some temporary control. You may fight back some temporary enemies, but you will not win people's hearts. You will not win people's allegiance. It is through love. It is through forgiveness. It is through sacrificial care for one another that hearts are transformed and societies are transformed. That is the way that peace breaks into our world and true justice comes into our world. And so this Advent season, the question that I want to pose to you is will you let Jesus be enthroned in your heart? This first Christmas, as Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, there was no room for this new king. My prayer that for us this Christmas, we would make more room for a bigger God, a God that does not want to simply save us from our sin, but now save us to a new reality, a God who is not simply our Savior, but who wants to be your Lord, to govern how you will live your life in a way that will lead to peace and justice and transformation in this world. Let loving hearts enthrone him, our carol says. May that be so in our hearts this Christmas, that we might receive the true wise counselor, wise ruler that we need. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, I pray that we would have the eyes of our hearts and souls opened more fully to who you are. May you move in even more fully this Advent season that you would make up and and take that priority in our hearts. Would you be our king? Lord, I pray that you would open the shutters of our hearts and minds to see the fullness of your light and that it would break into those places of darkness and fill us with hope and set us free. We pray in your name. Amen.